What is up, you beautiful bastards? It's your boy, Uppercut, aka Rabbi Canlos, aka Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to my good friend, Yaro Staruk, not of Game of Thrones Stark, he's a Staruk, and he's one of the original online money-making bloggers and the co-founder of InboxDone.com. We had a real fun conversation about the 20 years we've been working online. Yaro's been involved in the internet world since before dinosaurs, when he ran a website devoted to Magic the Gathering. Since then, he created the first, I would say, seven-figure online course and did that twice, among many other things. In this conversation, you'll learn three huge things. Number one, how the heck did Yaro make a million dollars from online course sales back in 2009? Number two, what businesses he's up to in Ukraine, of all places, he lives in Canada. And number three, what was our relationship with our families and how that affected us growing up? You're going to enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we jump into the conversation, you know this is a product plug. Go check out Yaro at yaro.blog. That's yaro.blog. There's no.com. And his new business, inboxdone.com. I think it's a VA service that just does your email for you pretty well. That's inboxdone.com. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Millionaire, aka Milind Patil from Singapore. What's up, man? He said, hi, Noah, aka Mr. Great at Questioning. He said the show is extremely impressive. Thank you so much, man. It really means a lot. It truly does. And if you want to shout out in a future episode, just leave an iTunes review or any review. I check every single one of them. I missed you, man. It's good to hear from you. First, congratulations on uh, visiting the dentist. No, I mean, getting engaged. <laughs> the dentist, too. <laughs> yeah. How was that? That was that was a pretty epic proposal I, I saw there. They, uh, she didn't see it coming by the looks of things. Well, you know, it's funny. She thought she saw it coming. So I had a plan for her to think she knows what's going to happen. I told her we're going to go for a weekend. I told her when we got there, I was like, oh, I love New York. Let me show you all my favorite things. And then I told her, I was like, man, I, I brought you here because I want to take you to the UFC fight. And so she was very disappointed at that, even though I was very excited about it. And uh, her dream was to get married at the Met. And I knew that, she told me. And so I coordinated the escape room to go and do an escape experience, which they don't even do. It's my friend's company, Museum Hack. She definitely was like, oh, I guess we're doing this escape game. And nothing else is going to happen. Yeah, it's a big moment. But I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it's perhaps bigger in your mind than it is when you actually go through it. I don't know. You tell me you just went through it. So Have you ever done it? Never done it. So my suggestion... I'll tell you a few things, but number one, I think you should propose maybe today, go find someone to propose to (laughs) only for the life experience. Like someone said this to me, my buddy, Andrew Drish said it. And he said, there's a certain things in the human experience that I just want to go through. And, you know, having a kid, proposing, marriage, getting fired, starting a business, getting a job. Did you have uh, ayahuasca on that list originally as well? <laughs> That's for people with serious problems. I've just had like every single friend of mine either do ayahuasca or um, the toad. I call it toad juice, but that's still not what it's no, actually it's like called. Compote. What's the, it's the toad poison? Yeah, this excretion of the toad. Let's find the name of it. Is it a psilocybin? It, it is, is it, a psilocybin. It's part of the, I think it's part of the family. Is it one of the DMT ones? I think it's one of the DMT ones. I it's DMT, but there's a name for it. It comes up in so many conversations with, with entrepreneurs. It's just like ridiculous. <laughs> Cambo. Cambo. Oh, no, I haven't heard that before. Cambo. That's the frog poison one. I don't know. What's wrong with all your friends? I don't think anything's necessarily wrong with my friends. Some of them are spiritually seeking, let's put it that way, and to different layers. You know, some are deep down the rabbit hole. Some just want to dip into the rabbit hole and then come scurrying out when they realize it's a little too impactful down there. Some go back for more and then they, they get enough and then and that's it. And, and I guess some just keep going back. You know, it's almost like... Uh, 
a cookie. You just can't stop eating it. You know, it's just the way it is. So. <laughs> I know you're a big reader and I want to talk with you about that, but I'm listening to um, an audiobook. It's John Walkerman. It's about James Simons, the guy who did Renaissance technology. I'm not familiar with it. It just came out. It's a pretty new audiobook about the guy who did Renaissance. It's like literally the best performing fund of all time. It's called The Man Who Solved the Market about Jim Simons. I think there's biographies that you learn and there's biographies that are just entertaining. And this is an entertaining one. There's a few pieces of nuggets to pick up. But one of the things that I took away as a funny thing, there was something I guess they said in the 70s or 80s, which was like screaming therapy where you go and scream. <laughs> yep. Is that true? You know about this? I know my father has been in the gestalt therapy world for most of his adult life. And my mother, she was a counselor. My aunt was a social worker. So it's like a bunch of hippie therapists around me growing up. So there was laughing therapy. There was dancing around naked men's workshops. There was, you know, getting into hot tubs with your students and gestalt therapy uh, graduation What's ceremonies. Gestalt? What is that? It's two things. It's kind of like a, a form of psychotherapy. Like you can apply it, you know, in one-on-one -on -one therapy or workshops or relationship therapy. But it's also that, you know, the sort of field of study or way of life as well. Like, like you might... Um, you know, you can call yourself a Gestalt therapist, but you practice Gestalt on a daily basis. It's actually one of the first places that living in the moment surface, you know, that that idea of staying present. Beyond that, I'm not deep into that world. My dad went hardcore in his 30s and never really left. It became his sort of teaching ground. He became a, a teacher, a lecturer. It was a side gig to his university days, but I kept hearing about it, you know, all the time growing up wasn't super interested in it, but you can't help but take a part. And then, of course, you know, I got an, became an adult and then Eckhart Tolle books were talking about the power of now and being in the moment. And then you had like Paulo Coelho books sort of talking about meditation and staying in the now. And even like when a lot of the drugs, it's almost like to get rid of everything else that's distracting you to get to what matters, you know. <laughs> so it's always about that finding the silence to define the path kind of situation. But uh, yeah, I, I'm always at? kind of fascinated when people have therapists as parents. I'm curious how that affected them in their development compared to my family's engineer. My dad was an engineer, mom's a nurse, dad was a, an entrepreneur, which I'm sure messed me up in different ways. And maybe they didn't even mess me up. But I'm curious how it like it impacted you. You know, maybe it's like, how was it when you went to your friend's houses? I was, I was <laughs> guess I was trying to imagine like you do something, your parents are like, well, how does that make you feel, Yaro? <laughs> you know, it's it's very difficult to practice what you teach to others. So I wouldn't say that I was a guinea pig for my parents. They were faulty people like most people and they were trying to help others. It's probably more on the opposite side. You see your parents doing bad things, you know, like uh, not great relationships or or not clear on their personal goals or career path. And you kind of wonder, hey, if you're helping people all day long with this stuff, why can't you get it right in, in your own life? But in terms of like, certainly from my mother's side, my mom was more of the main child rearer. I think the most important thing was feeling loved, safe environment. I was the only child for her growing up. So totally got that. She wasn't a counselor yet either. She was she, she did like Montessori preschool training. So she was always in a little bit of that world. But I think the most important thing, and this probably came about more as a rebound from her own upbringing, she felt as a sort of super shy, sensitive kid, she was forced to do a lot of stuff, like go to, you know, Hebrew school, go to these away camps during summer, just really wanted to do what her parents thought was best for her. And she thought by doing that, they would show her love. My grandparents were concentrate. Well, my grandfather was in a concentration camp for six years. So there was a lot of, what do they call that? Secondary uh, trauma stuff that comes through from uh, my grandparents to my, my mother. So I got the 
I guess she called the benefit of that in the sense that she over loved me and just let me do whatever I want all the time for fear of being like her parents, basically. I had no problems with that. That was pretty good. I wonder then what does it lead you if you ever have children? There's certain areas I would think back and go, I wish my mother pushed me a little harder and got through the fear or the, you know, the shyness so that I would have done things like, you know, more athletics because I would have actually possibly been good at it. And then I would have got some positive reinforcement about my own skill set. Instead, it took me to my 20s to kind of get that kind of self-esteem. It would have been nice to, you know, develop a little bit of that through being pushed beyond it. But I was just allowed to enjoy my own insecurities for as long as I wanted to basically as a kid. You're married now, so you must be thinking more about kids too. You you mentioned your a son on one of your podcasts recently, Oof. and I was like, you don't have one yet, so uh, that was definitely in your in your thought patterns. Um, <laughs> I was thinking it's so challenging to be a parent, you know. No matter what, it's like, mom, you love me too much. I hate how much you loved me. Like you know, like <laughs> like my mom was super involved and very dominant, and like yeah. I think it was great. I think one of the challenging things is my parents. I've talked with this about them directly. It's like I didn't like the structure and boundaries that they put on me. Versus my biological father had none. But I think the strictness of my mom and uh, stepfather actually benefited me the most long term. But in the near term as a kid or youth, I was like, F you guys. Mm. I didn't rebel that much. I was like, I'm going to get an A minus. Get ready for it. But it was just like, <laughs> but it, you know, I, you. I think at the end of the day, though, you're, you know, they're just trying to do their best. And it's probably they're replicating what they learned from their parents. The thing that surprises me, though, is like my brother, and I'm not knocking him, but I'll knock him because he doesn't listen to the show. <laughs> okay. Is that my brother had a kid. I'll just speak for him and then my relationship with uh, my fiance is that we study business, we listen to podcasts, we like watch YouTube and audiobooks, but we don't apply that in non-business ways, I think, as much. And for my brother, I was like, yo, you've never done this kid thing before. Maybe instead of winging it, like read a book. Actually, since ayahuasca in May, I've made a point to almost every month, I've been pretty disciplined about it, every month to read a relationship book. That's cool. I've got a friend who does like a relationship check-in every, I think it's every Sunday. And they just sort of sit down and, you know, check in on the relationship and then also kind of talk about their goals for the week and where they overlap and how can I help you with that? How can you help me with that? And I was like, it's a nice way to, to really stay in tune and not sort of get lost in your own life without including your, your significant other. How do you pronounce your last name? That's honestly the point of the show. Starak. Were you pissed about Game of Thrones? You're like, I'm not a Stark. <laughs> I've been so close to that name my entire life. It's the one thing that's been misspelled whenever my name is misspelled. And I kind of wish I should change it to Stark because, yeah, I'd have so many more <laughs> horrible conversations about Game of Thrones then probably. <laughs> you know, you corrected me six years ago. I think, oh, so you're, Stark. you're like, it's Stark. I let people say it however they want to. So come into your name. This is actually what I was really fascinated with you. I've known you. I've known about you for 10 years. We become friends years ago and not as we're not as close uh, friends. It's not that we were close and got drifted. We just, you know, we have our own lives. We haven't spent enough time together where you're in a different city all the time. So I guess I was fascinated personally. And I don't mean this as an insult, which always comes off as an insult. You know, you can do that to anyone. But like, <laughs> hey, I don't mean to offend you. And then I can offend Let you. Let me offend you. Yes. <laughs> everyone knows you. Like everyone knows Yaro. So if you've been in the internet world and you're maybe over 25, they're like, oh, Yaro. Kind of like Noah. They're like the sumo guy, right? But you're you're on a higher level. And so that's what we're curious about your name and curious about you and, and this whole experience you've had over, is it 12 years online? Might be longer. 98 was the first website. So, so was yeah. it 21 years? Yeah, that was uh, the Magic the Gathering website that started it all. So that's <laughs> a long time ago. How has this evolved for you, this, this 12, 21 year journey? Not 12, I wrote 12, but 21 years. Yeah, yeah. You know, it didn't really mean much until I started blogging. 
you know, blogging was the first form of social media. You, you could become an influencer before we had that term. And in a case of just since we're talking about my name, good old damn luck, I had this weird name. And as you probably remember, I grew my hair long and had this long curly hair, right? So not intending to have those as sort of brand differentiators online, they kind of became that the day I decided to start sharing content on a blog. So, you know, I was super introverted. I, I still am. Wasn't looking to get this recognition or anything from it. Um, don't get me wrong. I like making money from the power of a personal brand, email marketing and blogging and all that that came with it. But it was surreal that like the first time you, you meet someone in public and they go, hey, you're Yarrow, that blog guy. And then it happens a few more times. And then it's even weirder now because it's a long time ago. And now you're called an OG and like, oh, I remember you from back when I was starting my first website and I read yours every day. And it's like, <laughs> yep, I'm over the hill and put the pasture down. So, you know, it's like that kind of, you know, like a rapper who is no longer current, but all the rappers that are current used to listen to your stuff. So you're legit, but you're two, two or three generations ago. So that's what it feels like sometimes. I'm happy to be in that place, but it's fine. I just turned 40, so I don't feel like I should be old enough to be OG, but I guess that's the way it is in internet years, you know? You started a lot of the internet marketing and, you know, I was listening to uh, something you said earlier. I was checking some stuff out. It was like, you're talking about John Cho. And then oh, Darren, wow, yeah, you know, yeah. Darren from ProBlogger. One of the things I was fascinated is like, did you want to extend your fame? Right. Like to me, to some extent, I'm like, did he want to go from like you were the original to keep going to the levels of like, you know, the Gary V's and Tim Ferris's and like these, you know, Tony Robbins levels? You know, what did you end up wanting? I mean, there were times where I definitely thought about putting in the effort to get there. But to be honest, I'd already put in a lot of effort to get to where I was. And then I don't know, probably around the time you and I met, I was already starting to no longer want to talk about I'm teaching people how to make money blogging. And that was still what I was known for. So I would have had to amplify that kind of message. I'm not a Gary Vee. I'm not a Tony Robbins. I'm not looking to, you know, be that expressive with my message the way those guys are. But there's plenty of people who are you know, more quiet who still have an impact. You know, book authors, I can think of Susan Cain, uh, you know, the author of Quiet. She's a hardcore introvert and she makes a huge impact just from her writing. Don't get me wrong. The, the ego wants the fame. The ego wants the recognition on a grander scale. I just think I, like a lot of entrepreneurs, wanted to do other things as well. So it, it came to the point where I, it was a resource allocation issue. Do I want to take the next steps to write the books, speak on the stages, get so crazy busy on social? Because by then, you know what it was like. Instagram is starting to take over Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok. I did not want to be that person or I still don't want to be that person who is perpetually chained to those tools would happy to still and I still think about it, you know, write the book and have it be a huge bestseller. That would be a, a level of fame I'm I'm still excited about and, and going for. But it would have to be topics that I'm excited about now. I don't want to be going, you know, here's how to write a pillar article on your blog. And, you know, here's a uh, basic SEO stuff and how to write good content. It's just as you I mean, you with AppSumo and everything you did then you guys were huge on content marketing and you were known as a, like a content marketing guy for a while, too. So I mean, I can flip the question back on you. Did you want to or do you still want to get more famous than you are now? I mean, you're the tacos guy more than anything, I think. Sometimes. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> Because I think you're you're more famous than I am for sure. You you got on Tim Ferriss's show. You know you're hanging out with him on his TV show, and Tim got 
huge, huge, you know, actually, Tim is probably the perfect example. When he came out with the four hour work week, that was the moment where I was like, darn, I could have been Tim. I just didn't package my message up quite as well as he did, because we had a very similar message at the time with the sort of, you know, freedom, lifestyle, business, travel, that sort of thing. So there's been moments of jealousy. It's certainly been from, <laughs> from guys like Tim. What did you do at that moment? Or what did you do? Did that influence you changing? In a moment in time, I will tell you that I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to write the book and have the success or go bigger with the blog. But I'm very easily swayed by what's in front of me. Like I remember Rich Sheffrin would do a, a launch for going pure internet marketers, Jeff Walker, uh, Mike Filsame, all these guys, and they'd be doing something huge. And I'd be like, oh, I could do that. And then of course, yeah, Darren Rouse does this. And then you got the next generation, you got, oh, Lewis Howes comes along and blows it out of the water with this, you know, huge personal brand and his podcast. And then Pat Flynn, who I used to call like Yarrow 2.0, hey, he does everything I do, but better than me. You know, this, <laughs> this I don't like that, <laughs> you know? So uh, not to mention the startup tech world. Like I still get, and I do a little bit of an angel investing now, and it's still a big part of me. It's like, man, I would just love to be involved in a whole bunch of different industries. Because let's face it, we're, it's a bit of an echo chamber sometimes, you know, this world of internet marketing where we're all talking to the same people over and over again. So it's nice to talk to entrepreneurs who are, you know, this guy's in cannabis and this guy's in AI or this girl's in AI and it's kind of new worlds, new markets. And that that to me is exciting too. So to answer your question, over the years, I've been distracted by those things on a daily basis. The ones you choose to go after, that's a different story. You know, that's where you really got to, you know, get, as you would know, like why, why decide to do something new? Like you've got, um, family, right? The, the new app, Shopify, you know, like why decide to do that versus anything else you could do with the resources you've got, right? How do you make that decision? We did talk about it in one of the earlier episodes about how FAM got built and how we came to build it. But why even choose it in the first place? You know, like why do that and not do uh, something else completely? You know, what, what's what, where's the excitement behind that? That's how I make my decisions, you know, resources, excitement, opportunity, find those three things. I have some thoughts lately, which is just like, number one, how do you, to do more boring things. And the boring things is really how you can get great success. Great success, right? Like, I think it's from boring stuff, not necessarily the like sexy stuff. Like, and boring is basically just doing the same thing that's working. So if you look at some of the people that are getting to larger levels, it's like, Pat Flynn has been podcasting now weekly for what, 10 years? Right. Or my buddy Neville, I think you're familiar with Neville copywriting course. Like that guy now, it's been three years and he's put out an article up to two articles every week about copywriting. It's so boring. But he's like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to write about words again this week. <laughs> Just I know. Like, like, but, it, yeah. you know, and, and he really enjoys writing. I think the idea is like, how do you find the things that you can just keep doing forever? And then the other parts, like just get rid of them. So like for content marketing, the thought I've had actually the past two weeks is that I was doing a lot of content marketing hardcore about three and four years ago, where it really elevated the dork brand and, you know, sumo and so forth. And then what did I do? I stopped. I was like, I'm tired. And so <laughs> and I don't think yeah. I'm unique in that. But I think to no. you and, and others, what I'm trying to understand is even if I don't want to do it, there's probably someone else who does. So how can I enable to keep it growing if something's working? I've done that well with AppSumo, which is like, I got it going, it worked, but I don't want to be doing the operation to grow to the next level. Let's find someone who does. But I think we've made some mistakes where we didn't do that. And we kept kind of like looking for that next new grass thing instead of just being like, okay, this is working, keep going with it. Yeah. And so true. Like, but I think to even have the opportunity to make that choice, there has to be a certain level of success that you're seeing. And then obviously the cash flow that comes with it to start thinking, oh, I could hire an operations manager. Oh, I could, or even go bigger, take on a board of directors, get investors, you know, go ramp it up. 
tech Silicon Valley style too. You know, you had that opportunity as well versus, oh no, it's a business that I just want to take myself out of the roles that I don't like. Those kind of decisions. I guess what I was curious there is that like, did it start fleeting? Like the revenue started fleeting? And then like, how did that affect your ego? And, you know, Tim is getting bigger. And then what happened in that change in 2006 with your ego? And was like revenue and traffic going down and you were chasing it? Or did you say, if it's going down, you're like, F it? Yes and no. I mean, when I mention all those names, a lot of that's just comparison syndrome. And, you know, that's just more of a, a mental handicap that you have to, you know, work over and realize you're not any of those people and you, you know, you've got to figure out your own path. But as a milestone gauge, they certainly show you what's possible if you decide to go down a certain path. In my case, like I'm pretty sure I can't say this for 100% certainty, but I had the first ever online course about how to make money blogging in 2007, right? And that, that was long before this whole let's make a course teaching how to do courses came along as well. You know, some people do that. And now it's like everyone has a course and a lot of people are super successful. It's fantastic. So I had success with a course as well as you do. And then, you know, I did podcasting. That was okay. I wasn't like a John Lee Dumas every single day, but it was a great tool. Still is still doing a podcast right now. And the income, yeah, like you said, it was going up. So I got me more excited. So I kept doing it. And, and there was that probably five years from starting a blog in 05, getting to like six figures in 07, made over a million dollars. You know, probably oh, maybe 09 just before I turned 30. And that was all awesome, especially in hindsight. I was probably not grateful enough at the time because I was still comparing myself to others. I wanted the million dollar launch like John Reese. So I wanted the, you know, the next level. You always want the next level. But I was very good at bringing myself down and, you know, having gratitude in the moment and realizing how much better my life was than 99% of the people even around me in Australia, let alone around the world. So and I was sitting in cafes writing all day. And that that was really what I enjoyed doing. So that was the main gratitude being able to just sit in cafes and write. But then there was like a wave. And then I remember I started wanting to do a startup of some kind just to test a different sort of type of entrepreneurship. And I, I had a friend who was an engineer, a coder. So we started down this path of a, a tech startup. And around the same time that happened, I don't know if you knew me back then, but my mother had a stroke around 2011. Uh, so that was about five years into like, or five, six years really into the blogging. In fact, my, I shut down my course by then because it was old. So the first version of my training was, was shut down. My mother went into hospital and she was there for the next two years. And I basically was with her every day for two years straight, almost seven days a week. And obviously, you know, that's a, a grounding experience. Um, she ended up passing away after being in there for two years. Sorry, man. Yeah, that, that was rough. But what's also, you know, crazy about the experience in a, a good way was that because I had this, you know, business that wasn't running itself, but it had so much momentum behind it, I could choose to do that. I could spend every day in a hospital, didn't need to think about I might lose my job or anything like that. It was a, a transition point as well. It, it kind of all those comparison thoughts, they kind of went away after I saw what happens inside hospitals, because as you can imagine, not just what my mom went through, but everyone around her in the hospital, you know, life could be a lot different. So it made me lose some of the angst behind comparison syndrome or what level of success is good enough. 
not just in business and money, but, you know, relationships, family, how hot your girlfriend is, all these silly things as a young guy, you know, you value. That period kind of ended after mom passed away. And that's when I started traveling. Well, actually, no, that's when I moved to Melbourne a year. Like that's when you and I actually met. So you caught me, to be fair, you caught me at the start of what I would call the second wave of running that business. So I created a new version of my, my course. And I'll tell you what triggered it. So I was literally at the point where I'm like, I don't think this Yarrow identity is working anymore. Yet that's when my income was, you know, going down because I closed my courses. Traffic was going down because I wasn't publishing as frequently. And I was thinking, well, maybe I just start something brand new. I know blogging, so let's start a different topic. I did one thing that restarted my fire, I guess. And I, I highly recommend this to any coach or teacher. I sent an email to my past customers saying, hey, has anyone had a success story? I'd love to interview you for my podcast. Just tell me, you know, you took anything of my training. Has it helped you? And I had like 20 people raise their hands. And there were some like big names. I had no idea that were even in my course because they had taken it, you know, in 2007 or eight. And they were finally getting success in like 2012, 13. Some of them were actually like Natalie McNeil was well and truly doing a million a year with her business. And, and then all these smaller guys, they were doing six figures, you know, multiple six figures, but they were teaching speed reading or how to cure acne. So I just went through this glorious boost to my ego, but also just my self-esteem as a coach and a teacher that, oh, the stuff I taught actually worked. And there were some success stories. And I can actually build on this to launch a new version of my course. So actually, maybe I should give you credit and then not for this is when I'm giving it up. It's when I started phase two, really, because I, I created the new version of the course. I doubled down. Let's produce more content. Let's build automatic email lists. I remember actually because of you partially, Noah, because I remember sitting in a hotel with you and you were showing me how you managed your ad campaigns and you were like, running this very basic SQL query, you had like this ghetto interface to your database of showing how your email list is growing and your ad campaigns. I think it was like um, the early days of AppSumo when yeah. you're doing tons of you know special deals for people and your, your ability to grow traffic. I was like, man, this guy can just turn on a tap whenever he needs to grow his audience. Like, because I was all organic and you were all, I think, well, JVs and paid. Mostly so, paid. Yeah, for I was like, okay, I'm clearly not tapping into all the opportunities I can. So you and, and lots of other things like that were saying, I should get back into this. I should really leverage the asset I have, which is all my past students who've succeeded. And that's when I built a second version of the course. And it was almost like a complete repeat of the previous five years new students, income went right back up to where it was. But then if we fast forward to like maybe five years after that, so 2016, 17, that, that's when I was like, okay, well, lots of stuff happened. I mean, we could keep talking about this. The cryptocurrency boom happened. I went to Ukraine for the first time and I started a solar energy business there. So I, I got more distracted with other things at that point. Let's retrace some of the steps. So just revenue wise, whatever you're comfortable with, you did because I want to do that and then the course and then where it comes to. So you did hundreds of thousands, then you got to a million. Just to be clear, this is like total sales. So you not know, profit. Not, yeah, not profit. It paid for the house and paid for the car and, you know, great lifestyle and all that. No, no complaints. It peaked out at, at a million or two million on 2009 or 2010. If I remember right. It was like I hit like 200,000 and then. And I've got to remember, my tax returns are in Australian dollars, too. So it always looks better than it actually oh, that's is. That's awesome. Because you're earning U.S. and getting an extra 20% kick. So I think what happened is like 2008 or maybe 2009 and 10, it was like half a million each year. I mean, we haven't talked, but I sold one of my other companies. I had an essay editing business. Yeah, better edit. The one. Yeah. Oh, 
you remember? I know some how, how, do, how do you know about better edits? I just looked it up. I mean, <laughs> okay. The one thing that's missing, so it went, it went up to a million and then it went down a lot because you spent time with your mom and you shut it all down. And then it went back up to a million. I guess what I was missing is what sparked getting back on to doing that. The interviewing my past students. Because I love the idea of serving your, your successful students or asking them what they want to learn. It wasn't even me asking them. Like, this is people who had taken my training and had gone on and done something themselves, you know. So for me, it wasn't like, I want to know what to teach. I want to be excited again about teaching. And not only that, know that it works. Because let's face it, a lot of people who sell courses, we know that 95% of the people we sell to don't even do anything with what we sell. It's one of the most annoying aspects, but it's a hard truth about the teaching coaching business. So that's why you love the 5% or the 1% who do do something with your training and, and go on to be a case study or a success story. Some of my closest sort of online friends are actually past students who did something with what we taught. It was good for the, the ego and the self-esteem as a coach and a teacher, but it also gave me the sense of, well, I want to put these people on a pedestal and I want to use them in my marketing and, and show that this stuff works and get a new group of students and all that sort of thing. So that's really what sparked it, plus the desire to create a new version of your course and, and so on. But uh, twice, but not three times. The, the, it didn't come back for a third time to create a third version. So, on, so why'd you shut it down the second time? I didn't. I went all evergreen. Like this is the thing. The second time I learned from my first time, you know, the first version of my course was almost all written material. It talked about, you know, using Dig as a marketing channel <laughs> if we're going to date the, the first version of the course, right? So uh, there was Dig and StumbleUpon and all these early days sort of marketing techniques. So naturally that had to be turned off and, and updated. But when I made the second version, I'm like, well, first of all, I'm doing video, so you can't go back and edit. I'm going to make this course more about fundamentals, less about tactics. So let's not talk about how to use Twitter and Facebook and Instagram or whatever, because chances are in five years time, it might not be those channels anymore because I've seen it happen. I saw Dig disappear. I saw StumbleUpon disappear and no one talks about those channels or remember Slashdot. Slashdot was like the, the thing, the site you had to get boing, your, boing, your article. Yeah. yeah, all these amazing sites. And, and it's still running today. So the revenue, did it get back to that? And then is it, where's like, where did it come down to? I went through almost the exact same curve. So we ramped it up. I did launches, did got affiliates, did some paid advertising, got up to half a million a year in revenue again, did a couple of years like that. And then like the last two years, I, well, a lot of stuff happened. So like I personally got interested in doing some other things. I had more money in the bank. I left Australia, moved to North America, traveled as a digital nomad, wanted to start a new business with Inbox Done. So I kind of just, I won't say lost interest in that area, but I'd spent the, the previous five years really automating it. So a lot of the sales were coming from automated email processes. The traffic was organic. So I'd done what I was trying to show people what's possible here. You can build email marketing. I, I feel like I'm preaching to the converted here with you though, Noah. You can build email marketing funnels that won't last forever, but if you have a traffic source that's reasonably reliable and you know how to sell over email, then you can leverage the same content over and over again. Like I've had the same blog profits blueprint report out there for like the new version came out in 2012. It's still the biggest thing that's downloaded from my site, but I'll be completely transparent. You know, I don't publish content nearly as much as I did. So Google has been giving me less and less and less. It's been a, a steady downward curve and the market's gotten more competitive too. So with my energy not being there, it's trickled down to like a low six figure kind of income stream. Oh, I'm so sorry, rich people. 
<laughs> so there's a lot there okay number one when did you shave your head is that my question or your question i don't have hair i mean i went bald well you shaved your head i still have <laughs> no, no no when did you cut off your long hair 2000 and okay it was a transition period i'll be honest that's um, what i'm thinking yeah there's a story there too um because like one of the things i wanted to focus on heavily was my dating game when i just as i turned 30 because i was like I made a lot of money, but I just haven't dated and, and really experienced the, the social side of life as much as I wanted to. So, and that was when I came to the realization that the long hair may have been hurting me with the ladies. Okay. Ever since then, I did some empirical tests. Whenever I date girls, I show them photos of my my old self and say, would you date that guy? And a lot, most of them will be like, no, I don't think I would have. So it's not saying it long hair doesn't work. It just didn't work for me. I think at least based on my, my statistical analysis. But what happened was I kind of met a group of people, uh, a bunch of guys. One was French guy, a shout out to Alexi. He was in sort of men's fashion and just men's confidence in, in France. Uh, he had a blog called Nouvelle Homme, New Man. And uh, he actually was one of those people who I met in Australia who said, are you Yarrow? And that was back when I had long hair and he recognized, you know, the thing. So we became friends and he helped me kind of transition out of the, the old look to the new look and a hairdresser down in Australia. You know, it's funny, like now it seems like nothing to me, but at the time cutting off my hair was such a big deal. It was like not for the branding side, just for the personal identity side of things. The stupid thing is people still come up to me at events and say, Yara, what happened to your hair? And I mean, it's like I cut it. I did. It's probably 2011 or 10 when I started that that transition. When I was turning 30. So it would have been 2010. Yeah. Coming to, you know, this experience, I thought maybe it was timed with like the course going down and there's something related to that. It's hard to go back in time. I guess one thing I've thought about with Dork and the things I've done, would it have made sense to put someone on it that would have just paid attention to it so that as you want to get distracted, quote unquote, with other things, they could have kept the machine running and growing? I thought about it many times. I thought about getting venture funding and going down so many different paths too, because we have Mind Valley today and we have my friend Nathan Chan with Founder. You know, these are opportunities to have expanded into more education arms just by trying to take yourself out of the picture a little bit, you know, put an operations person in there, get some more people creating courses and content and build a, a media company in, in some ways, a teaching media company. So I thought about doing that. Short answer, I'm not good, I'll be honest with you, I'm not good at growing teams. Even with contractors and outsources, I have had such a hard time hiring. So I think there was a lot of resistance to doing something that required me mastering team development. I eventually hired Laura, who became my hiring manager, and that helped a lot with that sort of second phase of growing my business because we did hire a lot of contractors to do a lot of different things. Short answer is, I guess, I remember at one point I brought on like a bunch of volunteer authors to try and ramp up content. But all that happened is my traffic stayed the same and people said, we don't like not reading Yarrow. You know, it just shows the the identity you have with your, your own content. So I'm like, okay, well, if, my, if I'm not getting any metric boost here and I'm getting negative feedback, I think it's time to to change that back to the way it was. But it is hard to answer it because it's so long ago and the decisions you make at the time make sense for your, your emotional state, your personal desires, your financial goals. I know for me, that's just the way I preferred it. And I, I liked, I still like the idea of the personal brand and, and the identity of being that guy. In fact, you know, my blog is yarrow.blog now rather than Entrepreneur's Journey, which was the original domain name and the brand that was circulated out there, which I was partially embarrassed because it has a hyphen in it. And it's yeah, like I was like, this, you bought it 10, like 20, you know, what, 10 years ago, you couldn't have got it without the hyphen. 
2004 was when I got entrepreneur. Bro, that's what you bought? You could have bought entrepreneur.com. Man, I, I can't tell you. like, Because I started in 97. I could have bought so many domains in the domaining gold rush at that era. But uh, the best I got was betteredit.com. <laughs> so. Better. Wow. You really pick them. I, well, I got OK Dork because I thought someone would buy that for a million bucks. And uh, Really? Yeah, no one. Never. What have you been your things you've called right? So you didn't call dom- picking a domain right. You missed that one. I got a lot of cool domains, but only for my existing business. You know, I liked Blog Mastermind. I liked Blog Profits Blueprint. You know, I liked those. But they're for projects that were already up and running. I wasn't thinking I should go register sex.com. Like there's a good book on that story if you ever want to read it. So is it worth reading? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's more about the two guys because a con man stole it from the original guy who registered it. And like the legal stuff that they went through it was so funny because they were like having this massive legal battle. But they were becoming best friends. They were like in court and then they'd go home and phone each other at night and talk about just the stuff they're into. So it was like they were buddies, but they were like mortal enemies at the same time. It was so weird. It's called the player's Uh, ball. Player's ball by David Kushner. Yeah. So what other things did you call right? So you called doing getting a domain, even though I got the wrong one. You did call creating an online course before it was even, you know, before anyone did it. I called blogging without, you know, that's just because I was trying to get traffic from Google, but it certainly was the right time to start a blog and and go deep into that space. I mean, you could even do it with a domain name like entrepreneurs-journey and still succeed. So, you know, no complaints about that. I think blogging, selling courses, not that I went deep in podcasting because I didn't go daily or weekly, but I was and still am. I've you know it's been since 2005. I had episodes going out. Uh, Did you really? Yeah, started a podcast in 05. Too early. If anything, it was just too early because there was no I no none of these things to put your podcast on yet. I called it an audio blog. That was the the first name for it. And then iTunes came out. Is there anything you're calling now? Because you're going to give up in two years, so we should just do it. And then I'll <laughs> I'll give you all the money. <laughs> I'll just save you your your cut. (laughs) Honestly, I mean, I don't know about you, but the difference now compared to back then is back then I could start something myself solo, a content project or a podcast project. Now I feel like the cutting edge is so much more technical. Like I can't start an AI project without getting some engineers who are really good at AI. I mean, I could teach myself that, but I, I wouldn't even begin to try. Or, you know, some of the the platforms, they're more like you can't have a ghetto looking SaaS and expect it to just take off day one, where back in the day you could, right? Like now presentation matters more, first impressions matter more, competition is more stiff. So, you know, it's one of your differentiation factors. So I feel like, I mean, you can still start a content play because at the end of the day, and I say this knowing a good friend of mine, Joanna Penn, has been teaching me where where AI is taking content with the machines writing the articles and doing the podcast. So you and I will be two AI voice bots talking to each other to make the podcast, you know, like that'll be how it how it'll work in the future. So I'm not sure how much longer that play is available to us as well. But that's where I feel the difference is. So and, and just the, the pure volume, like I felt overwhelmed in 2005 with the all the opportunities. But at the end of the day, there wasn't social media yet. There weren't apps or mobile yet. So it's so huge for me. I can't even say, okay, yeah, it's going to be AI. I mean, I love talking about AI and blockchain and, you know, electric aeroplanes and fake meats. All that stuff is cool because I think it's things we need and, and will change the world in, in great ways. But that's why I'm putting on the angel investor hat now because I feel like this is where the OG comes out. I'm old. <laughs> so I want the guys who are 25 and the girls who are 25 who will have the energy to put in the 16 hour days to build something new and still be involved with it, but not necessarily, you know, be the one pushing the ball up the hill 
I'm sure you must feel this. I don't even know what you're doing now, Noah. Like, uh, I, I, what, what do you do besides get engaged? And AppSumo runs itself, I assume. It definitely does not run itself. There's a, a lot of people over there who work very hard to, to do it. From your perspective, it runs itself because you're not in there in the trenches, you know, doing everything you used to do with it. No, I mean, I think that's something I think about is that I've talked about demotivation recently with some of the people at the company because I'm demotivating them unintentionally. Oh, interesting. Because you you don't want to do what you're doing there? Or? No, no, no. Because I'm just like probably micromanaging and talking shit too much. <laughs> okay. And so it's demotivating. So it's like, how do you figure out how to get people motivated to run things themselves? With AppSumo, I'm even thinking the next stage is around like, how does AppSumo just run itself without humans, right? Like if you look at Amazon, Amazon has a machine that buys ads, has affiliates, and then it has a machine on the other side of all these people fighting to get listed on their site and then fighting to promote the hell out of having people buy their products at Amazon. And then while that's generating cash and so forth, they're, you know, experimenting with, you know, gateway drugs like the Kindle and the Alexa and other business units like AWS. And so and so I think it's figuring out how to create more of a machine. I think a lot of it kind of I'm curious for you as well, which is how do I want to spend time? And it sounds so stupid, but I guess for me, it's like, what do I really want to be doing for free? Where can I be helping coach the people in the company? I was talking with someone yesterday. We were biking. He's like, I really just want to help people. Sorry, I won't call him out because I'm not trying to hate, but I feel like everyone says that shit. Like, I'm just here to help and I want people to grow and be their best selves. I'm just like, I'm here to take advantage of people so that no one does well and I'm greedy. I think at the end of the day for me, I like promoting awesomeness. Like either people like yourself who've, you literally are the inventor of online courses and I want to spend a little bit of time on that to the people making the software to help small businesses to people making the products, like iPhone's probably a little bit too big, but like the hat company or the shoe company or bags, I think there's a lot of excitement in that. Just to your point, you want to put money in them, which I think is one way of approaching it, which I've tried and I, I don't feel like I do that very well. But I think promoting those people is kind of what my calling has been about. So we're both going to be podcasters. That's the it's our future. I think the podcasting medium doesn't really expand your audience. And so if I'm trying to influence and promote different people and products and things like that, I think podcasting I'll consistently do because I've found a way to make it sustainable by not focusing on metrics. But I think there's other things I want to do that can expand the influence of things I can promote. Like what? I think building out organic traffic back on my blog, like if I would have kept writing or hired someone, which we, I hired a guy named Mitchell to run Dork as a brand. If I would have hired him three years ago and been like, Mitchell, I don't want to be writing or doing editing anymore. I need you to just own it. I think it could be like five to 10 times bigger than it is now. Sometimes I, I think back on that. My girlfriend texts, my fiance texts me. She goes, you can't be buried with all the money. It's <laughs> <laughs> interesting way of putting it. <laughs> it was a little bit more harsh, but she said it with love. I get that, right? Where it's like, we can work on more blog and get more traffic. I think part of it is like, if Mitchell is enjoying that, and that's a way that I can use that, not use sounds negative, but like, if I can promote things through that audience, it's like, that's a great thing. I think ultimately, you have to find the things you, for me, I really enjoy and spend more time in that. And things I don't enjoy, like operating it once it's working, find other people. I get to chat with you. Like, this is kind of a job, but not really a job. It's an unpaid internship. Totally agree with that part. I mean, I've, been reflecting on what I enjoy the most too when it comes to this decision of how to spend my time. And I've noticed that it's the people I have the strongest kind of partnerships with that, that we're both building something together or we have a shared goal that I we're participating in, maybe not equally, but you know, we both have that, whether it's a business partner or someone you're helping in some way, but there has to be, I guess, 
some kind of personality connection as well as we're both trying to achieve something and it's the journey as always you know it's trying to get the outcome together and celebrate together even if it is a smaller outcome like uh you know with inbox done this new company it's trying to figure out how to make this company work together with my co-founder claire that makes me want to keep doing it even though in the grand scheme of things it's i guess a lot smaller than a lot of other projects because it is so new still and then it's my partner in Ukraine on three. I would never have thought of doing a solar energy company in Ukraine. That that just sounds so. When would you tell me three years ago? I would be like, no, I'm not doing that. Who does something in Ukraine? That country's dangerous, and you know it's unstable, and the currency fluctuates. And okay, my dad's from there originally, so I can't totally be against it. And then you know to meet someone and, and realize and go live there for a while and, and see the place and and you know feel a bit of a connection because of the family. And I ended up buying an apartment there again. Something I would have never thought of in doing. Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. Well, there. How much is an apartment 000, in Ukraine? Fifty thousand US was the apartment I bought, and then did a fairly heavy renovation. What are all the business ideas you've done? Like, if you had to recap every business idea you've tried over twenty years now. Okay, so the Magic the Gathering website that was my first e-commerce play. That was awesome. <laughs> I loved that game when I was a teenager. Better edit, so selling essay editing services as a, a middleman, connecting the contractors to the students. So thesis editing and essay editing, then getting into blogging, which, you know, it's multifaceted blogging, podcasting, selling courses, selling coaching, selling eBooks, selling a membership site. I've got a, an academy there. Then I started Cranky Ads with my co-founder, Walter, and another co-founder, Mick. That was an attempt at making the social network for the two groups that I connected, bloggers and advertisers. So I wanted to make the Facebook for bloggers and advertisers so they could find each other and do deals basically but totally got swamped in a, a tech couldn't afford the tech to build the thing to test the idea whether it worked or not so that was kind of like a two-year fun experience that got nowhere we did build an ad platform but it was pretty rudimentary then i got into i mean i don't know if cryptocurrency counts i gambled on cryptocurrency and won amazingly enough but only one because i had to pull the money out to pay for the solar plant in ukraine so what do you mean uh, you gambled well i call it cryptocurrency gambling because it's speculative trading you're putting money in to an asset class that's basically just going up because everyone else is putting money into an asset class. Like I didn't, what I'm saying is I didn't have, there wasn't a tech I was backing there. I wish I would love to, you know, see crypto become something I could spend on an everyday basis at every grocery store and, and then see like a, an exchange between, you know, green energy providers in a local area who use a token to pay each other to swap, you know, their solar power back and forth. But we're not there yet. And I wasn't investing in that. I was literally buying Ethereum and buying Bitcoin and then watching it go up every day and then go down and then go up and go down and go up and pulling enough off the table at the time I needed to to pay for a solar plant that I built. So that was a fun year. I don't know if you did anything in crypto in, in the years that were booming, but um, it was the first time I ever had cash to invest during a bubble because I, I lived through the dot-com boom and I lived through like these property booms in Australia and Canada, but I never had cash at the time to actually really leverage them. So this is the first time I'm like, this is one of those crazy booms where people make a lot of money in a short period of time and I've got some cash. So let's gamble it on this crazy crypto coin. And then the solar project, so that, that got finished started this year and has been making energy for the local Ukrainian economy and also paying me back 
it's like passive income, really. It, once you build it and the sun keeps shining, it keeps making money. That's been fun. I mean, I wasn't heavily involved with the actual setting up of it, but it, it's been a project that feels good in the sense that it's green energy. It's helping my father's homeland. Yeah. How much does it cost to build a solar plant? And then how long does it take to make the money back? In this case, there's a tariff that the Ukrainian government pays to encourage green energy. So if you do solar or wind or hydroelectric, they'll pay you back like a 18 cents or 18 percent or whatever. And then in our case, it was how much can we raise? So we ended up doing a 3.4 megawatt solar plant and that costs about three million ish dollars. And then you basically get a loan for part of that, like about half of it comes from a, a loan from the local banks and then it pays itself off in five years and then it's pure profit for another five years uh, of you know it's kind of like almost like an annuity i would call it you know you, you're just getting the money back and then you're getting more profit back and then you still get make money but it's based on whatever the current rate for power will be at that time which will probably be very low because it's getting cheaper and cheaper to generate green energy and then, yeah, Inbox Done is the most recent one I started with Claire, which is a company I started because I had not done email myself ever since the Better Edit days. I basically taught or brought on board a stay-at-home mom and said, let's see if you can take over doing email for this company for me because it's the last thing that I'm still trapped to with this business. I wanted a four-hour workweek business before there was the four-hour workweek book. So the editing company was running, but I had to check my email like crazy because we had jobs that would come in and, you know, a student, they'd say, I need this back in 12 hours and we would charge more for faster turnaround. But that meant we had to check the email constantly to make sure we could do the deadlines. So when I brought on someone, that was like, taking me out of the puzzle you know kind of like what you were talking about doing with my blogging business i actually did it with the editing company and then when i started the blogging business i naturally had someone do email as soon as i could afford it because it's like going first class you can't go back to doing your email every day i heard someone give a great example they were like back in the corporate world used to have the mail room you know in the basement where all the mail was sorted and the the mail person would have that truck and trolley and drive it through all the offices giving people their most important letters and yet since we switched to electronic mail it's like we're the mail room we're still doing you know our own email every day which is crazy like it shouldn't be your job you should only see the most important five percent or whatever it is especially for like entrepreneur types it's quite crazy how many times i see a question on your face no yeah you kind of <laughs> lost me a bit this is i think i zoned out for a second just to be real no problem but i, I still love you in a good way I think you're like, you're like the most polite internet person that like, <laughs> I don't think you, you're mad or upset about like the changes of the world. I think you've kind of been exploring your own, in your own boat, going in your own way, finding things that you're curious about and going into them. That is a lovely way to put it. My younger self would say that boat was pretty rocky at times and, and wasn't happy with things. But I think most of the time there's been an underlying sense that you know everything's going to be okay and you know the point of this is to kind of figure out what you want to experience and go through so because like right now inbox done to be absolutely honest i'm having problems with it i don't know how to grow it past a certain point so that's frustrating but it's the fun of figuring out how to make this new business work everything we talked about whether it's been like getting jealous of people doing better or doing bigger numbers or whatever, more podcast downloads, bigger launch. I mean, I think I probably even put you in there sometimes. No, I remember looking at your AppSumo going, man, this guy, yeah, so fast. He gets traffic so fast. This is crazy. I have to write articles for two years to get that kind of traffic. He just switches it on with one ad campaign. So that, you know, there's all those kind of mental handicaps that you have. But I think at the end of the day, most of the basics have been covered. And like, I have to give a lot of credit to discovering writing and blogging, though, like that as a way to 
give yourself therapy and build an audience. It's a lovely combination where you can sit there and be really transparent and help other people. And that in turn creates a connection and builds an audience. Plus it helps you process things like, you know, it's like a win-win-win in that case. I don't need ayahuasca. I just sit down and write <laughs> on the blog, you know. So, Do you still blog as much even though you're not, are you still doing it as much? Not so much, certainly not as much as, you know, the early days. Early days was almost daily, certainly at least a couple of times a week. I've been more writing for projects, I guess, whether it's been an email campaign. I still have a, like a newsletter and, and send that out roughly once a week. Still do the podcast, so that goes up as well. It's more, yeah, project focused. You know, don't be wrong. If something comes along like that Ukraine property renovation, I sat down and had a lot of fun just doing a before and after blog post about how to, why did I buy a property in Ukraine? Look, it looks like a zombie graveyard. And now we've renovated it. Look how amazing it looks now. You know, that's a lot of fun and, and it gets a lot of interest because the audience, everyone loves before and after house pictures, right? So we didn't really touch on it. And I was curious about it is like, how did you get the insight to do an online course and how did you put it together? So maybe if you could share on that. I mean, the short answer is I had no product and I was educating myself in information marketing and, and everyone said you need a, a list and you need a product. And when I say everyone, I just mean all the people who were doing amazing things with email marketing at the time. I started writing a book. Nine months later, it wasn't finished. So I was like, book's not going to work. I had some friends doing great with subscription information. So set like a weekly email teaching how to make money from selling ebooks or something like that. So that was like, okay, I feel like I don't have to spend nine months writing a book. I can launch a course based on a weekly something. And uh, that's basically how Blog Mastermind 1.0 came to be. I, I actually launched it as a subscription first. And I have to give credit to Jeff Walker and John Reese because they had done internet marketing launches with affiliates. And I followed that model to release the subscription. But I'll be honest, I wrote the course after I sold it. So I, you know, I was scrambling with 400 paying members, I wrote the first month's worth of lessons. And then I spent the next six months trying to stay one step ahead of them, writing a lesson, creating an audio version, sending it out to them, you know, getting questions, doing Q&As, stuff that we take for granted now. But you kind of realize, well, what do people want? Oh, they want to ask me questions. Let's do a, a teleconference Q&A. Let's write the next lesson based on the feedback you got from the previous lesson. You know, it sounds really smart now, but it's really makes sense. It's a common sense kind of solution. And then I turned it into a course once it was finished and became like more of an evergreen evergreen model. And you know, it hasn't changed much. So for nowadays, people do video, obviously, and it's more 2.0, more social, you know, Facebook groups here and things like that. But uh, it hasn't changed. We're still just teaching people. I think that's probably the harder thing. If you never taught someone, I'd never taught someone. So learning how to be a good teacher. Have you ever done? You've done lots of training before, Noah. You know how to teach people, right? So. Yeah, I'm still learning. I think it's that's why I read a lot of coaching books, like professional sports coaching. Also, relationship books, like you know, Bill Belichick's book is really amazing. Gridiron Genius, who's been on the show, and then relationship books like Things to Know Before I Got Married, Wired for Love, another good. But I use these and figure out like how do I work on relationships and, and teaching in general. Evan Pagan was a huge influence on me as a teacher of teaching, and he is like like you sound right now. He would go deep with books and experts in any topic like he i remember when he had his first baby suddenly he's talking about baby development reading all these books talking to baby experts because that's what's in front of him in his life so it's similar to you i think you know now you're talking about getting married i should educate myself on this and speak to the experts and and i, I did the same you know whether it was business and then dating and then health because we all go through the health side things too don't eat the sugar you know so 
learning how to create a course, that's a different level of teaching, I guess, because you do have to try and keep it coherent and substantial and results orientated. That's a bit different than, you know, a few random podcasts and uh, blog posts, which is all I had done to that point. So, but you know, you get better. I mean, that's, that's what we're all trying to do. How did you deliver the course, by the way, though? Blog posts. So I, I set up a separate WordPress and then password protected it, wrote courses. And then, and this is something that was like kind of cutting edge at the time, I sat down and recorded audio versions and put it as a playable, like an audio book of a book, an audio version of the course now. But that was before video was like everywhere. I hate that so, we're like kids these days don't know about any of these problems that we had to deal with, which is <laughs> uh, we could do another uh, old internet OGs who complain about stuff. OG podcast. Yeah, we could do the, the grumpy OG of information and marketing. Last thing, and obviously we'll catch up again, hopefully before next sure. six years. You read a shit ton of books. I love reading books. What should I go read? Like what, what's your top from this year? I've been getting into AI. There's a talk, this book called Talk to Me by James Lajos. It's been very eye-opening about voice AI. I really enjoy Bitcoin Billionaires. And in fact, the whole Ben Masaryk, uh, his whole, well, not trilogy, too. The Accidental Billionaires about Facebook and then the Bitcoin Billionaires, the sequel. How Chuck Feeney Made and Gave Away a Fortune by Eric Snitzvet. I accidentally read that one. Accidentally. It wasn't intentional. I don't know how I got it, but that was, I highly recommend. Really interesting story. I just found the guy as an example of a human being who's an successful entrepreneur, but also impacted the world without wanting the recognition from it. Super admirable. That's the kind of person I would be like, I respect you more than most human beings on this planet because you, it's just an amazing story. So I definitely recommend that as an entrepreneur and, and someone who wants to uh, you know, change the world. This um, is the billionaire who wasn't, right? By Chuck yes. Feeney? Okay. I mean, who is Michael Ovitz? Did you like him more or less after you read the book? You know, I'd only come across him externally. Like people would talk about Michael Ovitz and they'd either say he's a dick or he's a great guy, right? So I think getting the book, and in most cases, I'll say this, I like the person more afterwards. You know, you get a bit more of a dimension around them. It's still, you know, a viewpoint that's probably their own. So it's biased. But I feel like you're getting at least a little bit more context about, you know, what they've done and who they are. I think that's an interesting point in general. Shane Snow, a friend of mine, wrote about this a long time ago. And it really stuck with me. He wrote about Ryan Gosling. And he wrote that oh, yeah? if you ever read about someone's story, you generally will like them more as a person if you know a little bit more about them. Like, I think there's these things about people who are like, ah, fuck that guy or screw this girl. And then you're like, know some of their story. You're like, oh, they're a pretty great person. Or I like, yeah. I'm more open to them. The only time I haven't had that is I went through a book about the Koch family, you know, the energy barons. And they had obviously a lot of negative press around them before. I mean, I'd heard nothing really but negative things about these guys, mainly because I'm reading a lot of liberal press. <laughs> but then hearing their story, you can see, wow, like if you want to talk about your parents screwing you up or your, your family screwing you up, Sons of Wichita by Daniel Shulman. So um, you hate them more after this? I, I don't hate them. I understand them more as a family dynamic and, you know, brother against brother. I think there's some major ego issues, like if they can just drop some of the ego. But at the end of the day, you know, you're getting a very two dimensional version of a story. So I feel like they're a little bit clearer in their motivations and why they do what they do. And you can admire their entrepreneurial side as well. But yeah, I mean, they're choosing to use their power in a, in certain ways. I feel like almost it's to detriment to themselves too. They, I mean, they have a goal and they think it's admirable, but it seems like they go through a lot of suffering, especially with their family. I don't know. The Genghis Khan book was amazing. Uh, you know, Tim Ferriss, I think recommended that one a few times. Genghis Khan by Jack Weatherford. 
you know what? I really enjoy old school entrepreneur bio. So I'm going to leave you with uh, Andrew Carnegie by David Nassau because uh, learning about entrepreneurs who were doing big things in the old days, even if they weren't necessarily good things like oil tycoons and slave labor and things like that, but uh, just the magnitude of the impact with the Industrial Revolution and so on. So Andrew Carnegie and the money they give away. There's a library here in Canada, you know, it's an Andrew Carnegie library and that's no no longer a library, but the building was originally a library. So it's a fairly big impact. Is this the one that's like super long? Yeah, like for me, the best bios are super long. You go in, you know, like 20 hours of let's find out what they had for breakfast when they were seven years old kind of bios. You know, that's the stuff that I really like. No, I read Titan by Ron Chernow, the Rockefeller story. That was actually, that was super long. Hey, dude, I've got to go. It's awesome catching up. And uh, it was great seeing your face. You keep po- you're like more positive than I remember, which I love. Oh, okay. well, that's a good impression. Thanks, Noah. I appreciate the chat, too. And let's do it again, man. It'll be, it'll be fun. All right, boss. Good seeing you, man. You too. Bye-bye. That is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode. If you did, go check out Yaro Starak at yaro.blog and his latest business, inboxdone.com, if you hate email and want someone to do it for you. Also, I hope you guys enjoyed the book recommendations. I went and got a few of them. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's make history together. And before you go, let me know what you thought of the episode by emailing podcast at okdork.com. I only read the PSs of those emails. And a final special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com, as always, for these podcasts sounding so nice and polite. And a thank you to Sean, David, and Mitchell of the Dork Team for always kicking a lot of ass. And a special shout out to Marnie. Hey, Marnie. Hope you're doing well. Just to let you know, you're the bomb at Sumo for always helping out. What's your favorite holiday? <laughs> <laughs>